If you dig the twisted, admire the outlandish, and are enamored by the unusual, you're in the right place. True crime, the supernatural, the unexplained, now you're speaking our language. If you agree, join us as we dive into the darker side. You know, because it's more fun over here. Welcome to Total Conundrum. Warning, some listeners may find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> hey everybody. How are you today, Tracy? I'm good. How are you today, Jeremy? I'm good. Great. So do we have any uh, updates or housekeeping to cover today? Got a few things. The one that we have reminded everybody, and hopefully everybody has it figured out soon. But if not, Stitcher is going to be ending on August 29th of this year. So make sure that you find your next favorite platform to listen on. Yeah. And we have uh, some upcoming adventures that we're really excited about. We are going to be staying at the Haunted Palmer House Hotel in, I think it's Sock Center, Minnesota. I think that's right. I think so. And we are going to be making a trip to Duluth. And we're going to be visiting the Greenwood Cemetery. Yes. And then we are also going to try to book a night at the Boyd House, which is also haunted. Ooh, yeah. So with the Palmer House, we actually have a story written up about the Palmer House. So we'll be uh, telling that story around the same time and maybe we'll dive in a little bit to the Greenwood Cemetery and the Boyd House as well. Yeah, but right now the Palmer House is top secret because the video of it will be going on our Patreon only. Yep, the story will be on our regular feed. Yep, we got to try to keep it on a down low. On the DL. On the DL. (laughs) And we'll be purchasing some equipment. Yeah, you ordered one the other day. What was that? I ordered the SB7 Spirit Box. Is that the one that goes... It kind of goes through different radio Radio frequencies. Very cool. Yeah, it should be fun. Well, speaking of equipment, we have, in doing some of this research for these different types of paranormal ghost hunting equipment. I did post something on our Facebook page the other day. I discovered that the K2 meter, which is EMF readers, Mm -hmm. there is a difference. There's a knockoff and there's a real one. So I put the differences out there on how to tell if you're buying a knockoff or not. So if it's something that you're interested in uh, maybe exploring in the future, definitely check out that post because you want to make sure you're having, you have quality equipment. Yeah, check it out. Yes. But I am so excited about these adventures that we're going to be going on, but uh, so nervous as well. I'm still, still haven't overcome my fear with the ghosts and stuff. I'm just, I am a scaredy cat, but I'm doing it for you guys. I just, I'm hoping someday I can be calm like all these people on these shows. They don't seem to be as afraid as I am. (sighs) And I just keep reminding my husband that he's not allowed to bring up triggers like the black-eyed kids. (laughs) (laughs) What about the hookman or the hitchhiking ghost? Shh! Don't give away too many of our urban legends. That episode's coming up in the near future. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) That will be a good one. We need to do that soon for sure. I have it written up. It's in the lineup. But you just want more ways of scaring me, don't you? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I see how you are. (laughs) Maybe I won't unlock the truck if the hook man comes a (laughs) calling. 
<laughs> you know I will, but I have to tease you too. On another update is that our trailer is now finished and live. Check that out on any platform. It turned out really well. You did an amazing job putting that together. The YouTube version has videos and images incorporated in it, and it's so cool. We also have our graveyard ghost hunting adventure available on Patreon as well. We did go back to the graveyard in the daylight to see if we could find out any of the names that were mentioned on our hunt if we could find any of them there and we did find a couple kind of creepy um we were also recording video and audio we didn't capture any evps on the audio recorder but jeremy's still going through the video i believe yeah the main one i was looking for was armando Armando. (laughs) and i did not see a single gravestone with Armando on But there was a lot of them that you couldn't read the names anymore, though, either. That's, that's true. But a lot of them. It was crazy. I did find an Isabella, though. Isabel, so, yep. Um, so that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was kind of cool to go there and see everything in the daylight. And there was some really old stones there and some beautiful ones, too. Yeah, most of the names that we got that night were pretty normal yeah no so it's kind of hard to tell if uh if there was any legit names right right it was still fun though right it was definitely fun well that's it for updates this week should we get to our stories let's do it jeremy are you kicking us off today i am what you got for us i am gonna be talking about the weepy voice killer So, in the years from January 1981 through August 1982, police in St. Paul and Minneapolis started receiving disturbing anonymous phone calls from a person later to be dubbed as the Weepy Voice Killer. Paul Michael Stefani, born September 8, 1944, Stefani was the second of ten children, a devout Catholic, his mother remarried when he was three years old. Stefani's stepfather was allegedly abusive to his stepchildren, smacking them on the back of the head and throwing them downstairs. What a, what a nice dad. guy. Yeah, yeah, wow. Stefani grew up in Austin, Minnesota on a five-acre parcel of land with his mother and stepfather. After graduating from high school, Stefani moved to St. Paul, He struggled to keep a job, bouncing from one job to another. He got married to Beverly Leiter and fathered a daughter with her. Stefani and Beverly got divorced shortly after, and he abandoned his daughter. One of the jobs that he had was a janitor at the Malberg Manufacturing Company in 1977. After losing his job, he started drinking alcohol heavily. Stefani's first victim's body would be discovered near the Malberg Manufacturing Building. The place where he worked? place where he worked. On December 31st, 1980, Stefani viciously attacked Karen Potak, a University of Stevens Point student, on her way home from a nightclub. When she was attacked near Pierce Butler Road and Syndicate Avenue in St. Paul around 1 a.m., she was attacked with a tire iron and left for dead. Mm. Around 3 a.m., police received a call from her attacker. And I'm going to go ahead and play that 911 call for us now. (laughs) Um, That would be the wrong track. (laughs) I like the Tweety Birds. Here we go. This is the right one. Yes, please. This is an emergency. Please send a squad to Pierce Butler Road. Uh, Malmberg Manufacturing Company, Machine Shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? There's hurry. There's a, she's laying on the ground in the back by the, by the railroad tracks, by the engine. What, what's the address? I don't know. I don't Who know. are you? I don't know. Wow. What a weenie. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Hurry. I don't know. So, amazingly, Karen survived the attack. But was, oh, thank God. Yeah, but was left with no memory. Which, I mean, yeah, it sucks that, uh, you know, she has memory loss and stuff, but I really hope that she doesn't remember the attack for her sake. Yeah, it might be a good thing that she don't remember it. 
less traumatic. Maybe yes, poor yeah. woman. She had not been sexually assaulted. It appeared to police that his only motivation was to murder Karen. She had been so severely beaten that her brain had become exposed. Oh, my God. Yeah. When investigators found her naked in the snow, Sergeant Joe Cochran said he saw extreme rage in this one said that it was the most devastating scene he'd seen in his entire career. I wonder why he had her naked. Naked if, in the first I right. wondered that too. But Maybe he was interrupted or something. Could be. Or trying to get her to not run because she's naked. I don't know. We, can't, we can only speculate. We can only speculate. Yeah, that's for sure. So on June 3rd, 1981... The next victim would be Kimberly Compton. She was just 18, just graduated from a small town of Pepin, Wisconsin. After graduating from high school, Kimberly packed her bags and got on a bus and headed to Minnesota's capital city of St. Paul. Like so many other small town high school graduates before her, she couldn't wait to leave and start the next chapter of her life in the city. Kimberly arrived by bus to downtown St. Paul. She got a locker at the bus station, put her bags into the locker, and went to find something to eat. Right across the street from the bus station was a diner called Mickey's Diner. That place is so cool. Yeah, historic place. Yes, it's like a dining or a it's like a train car. Train car yeah. Hall. Yeah. Yeah, kind of unusual. So she went in and ordered the special of the day, barbecue beef sandwich and fries. Yum. Yeah. Sat down at a booth to enjoy her meal. Sitting just a couple booths away would be Paul Stefani. He noticed Kimberly sitting alone and struck up a conversation. Kimberly had told Paul that she just arrived in the city and didn't know her way around yet. Paul offered her a tour around the city so she could see all the sights of St. Paul. Kimberly seemed comfortable with Paul, so she eagerly accepted. She could not wait to see the lights of the big city. Mm. She was... Happy that she had a local to help show her around. Kimberly and Paul finished their meals and left Mickey's Diner. Kimberly's body was discovered by a group of teenage boys in a wooded area north of Superior Avenue and Oneida Street in St. Paul. This poor baby. I, mean, I say baby because she's 18 years old. Leaving her home to go to an adventure in the city, she literally gets off the train, puts her stuff in a locker, and then has the unfortunate luck to meet this asshole. Weepy voice. Which, weepy voice bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Within minutes of her stepping off of the train. And then he kills her. That's horrific. Oh, what a douchenheimer. Douche newt. Yeah. <laughs> Do shoot. Do shoot. <laughs> so yeah, she had been stabbed 61 times with an ice pick and strangled with a shoelace. Wow. Who the hell has ice picks just laying around like, nowadays? Ice pick like the old school yeah. break apart an ice block yeah. ice pick? Yeah. What? I mean, I guess it kind of looks like a screwdriver, but... Still, that's that's old school shit. <laughs> that's old school. Hours later, police would receive another call from Paul Stefani, a.k.a. the Weepy Voice Killer. Mm. And I will play that audio for you now. Oh, you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I, I can't, can't stop myself. Okay, folks. All right. Wow. What a crazy loony. I can't stop myself. I can't. I just can't. I can't do it. Oh, my God. I just want to bitch slap the man. I do, too. I don't even want to call him a man. He's not a man. <laughs> so while police initially believed it was a prank call, one detail from the preceding Recording stood out. The caller confessed that he had just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. Only the killer would have known that he used an ice pick because we did not share that information with the media, Sergeant Cochran said. Eight days later, on June 11th, Paul would call into the police again, and I'll play that clip here now. Don't talk, just listen. 
whiny that time but still yeah he sounded like just really creepy that time (laughs) (laughs) and because of his voice was so distinctive law enforcement compared his call to a previous phone call from five months earlier however both calls were too short to trace leaving police little to go on two months after compton's death police received a call from a man named alan lopez and was holding his family hostage. During the negotiations at the scene with Lopez, he told investigators that he was the one that murdered Kimberly Compton. Oh. Yeah, but turns out he was not. It turns out that Lopez had a history of mental illness and assault. After negotiations failed with Alan Lopez, he ended up taking his own life. After a year had passed, they started to believe that maybe Lopez was the weepy voice killer for the fact that they had not gotten any more calls since Lopez died. So with Lopez, he was holding his family captive. Was his family okay? Yeah, his family ended up being fine. He just ended up taking his own life. But I I do remember this story back in the day, and I tried to look up more information on Alan Lopez to try to figure out why he would confess and all that, and I couldn't find any articles. Maybe he was trying to do uh, assisted suicide instead of thinking that if he confessed to a murder he didn't do that the police would assist him in his suicide maybe maybe i'm not sure total speculation yeah it's really hard to say without being able to find a story on it yeah it's there's definitely not much out there on this guy at all i just remember during this time frame seeing a a live news broadcast about him holding his family hostage i remember it went on for quite a few hours right but See, I don't, maybe I was too involved in my cartoons or something, but I don't remember <laughs> the weepy voice, I, and especially with it being in our state. Yeah. But I don't remember the Lopez, I don't remember the weepy voice until I started listening to podcasts a few years ago. Well, and I think that was the problem. I was so young that I didn't really, you know, it just seemed scary to me right. you know, hearing it. I remember the live broadcast of it, though. I just don't remember the facts, unfortunately. And it's odd that you can't find a story out right. there. Right. Boy, talking about that uh, Mickey's Diner, my stomach has just been growling ever since. <laughs> 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 I'm hungry. <laughs> so after the call came in, you know, assuming that they got the weepy voice killer later would find out that that was not the case a paper boy doing his route would find another body in minneapolis the body was of barbara simmons on august 6 1982 found along the banks of the mississippi river she had been beaten and stabbed repeatedly wounds on her body could have been made by a phillips screwdriver or or an an ice ice pick. pick according to Detective Don Brown of the Minneapolis Police Department. By analyzing how the perpetrator attempted to cover up the crime scene, Detective Brown determined that it wasn't the first time killing someone. And then two days later, the weepy voice killer would make another phone call to police. And I'll play that audio here for you. Please don't talk to this person. I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my chief. I don't know what the matter is. I'm going to kill myself, I think. I'm going to kill First off, that poor paper boy for discovering that body. I I could not imagine being a child and coming across something like that. But it'd be horrific. Yeah. You'd be having those visions of that for the rest of your life. So knowing that they had a serial killer on their hands, investigators reached out to the FBI for assistance in profiling the suspect. Profiler Kimberly Masnick 
theorized that during the calls, the killer was going into a juvenile state. He's crying out. Literally. Yeah, literally. (laughs) This is somebody who's wanting to play a cat and mouse game, Masnick said. Meanwhile, loved ones told investigators that on the night that Simmons was killed, she went to the Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis. A bartender and waitress saw Simmons talking with an unidentified white man. Simmons told one of the waitresses, I hope this guy's okay because I just need a ride home. And he was not no, okay. he was not. Police dug through mugshots of offenders with a history of violent assault, narrowing them down to an eight-photo lineup based on the witness's suspect description. Detective Brown had the bar staff go through the mugshots, and they identified the man who was with Simmons as Paul Michael Stefani. Digging into his background, Hennepin County Attorney's Office discovered Stefani had worked at the Malberg Manufacturing Company where Potec had been attacked on New Year's Day. He soon became the investigator's main suspect. The police set up a surveillance team on Stefani's apartment complex. He left his residence on the evening of August 21st, 1981, and while investigators were able to follow him to Minneapolis, they eventually lost track of Stefani. Several hours later, a man called police after witnessing a woman being stabbed with a screwdriver. The man attempted to intervene, but the suspect threatened him and then fled the scene in his car. First responders found 21-year-old Denise Williams, who had been engaging in sex work when she was stabbed 13 times. She told police the suspect offered to drive her home, and somewhere in East Minneapolis, he pulled over to the side of the road. He then took a screwdriver out of the glove compartment and began stabbing her. Williams found a glass bottle in the car and smashed it across his face, allowing her to escape before witnesses called for help. The quick thinking on that lady is amazing, and those pop bottles back in that day... They were thick as shit, so that had to have been a pretty bad cut. They were actually glass. Yeah, thick glass. Thick glass. Police showed Williams several mugshots, and she identified Stefani as a man who stabbed her. Not long after Williams' attack was reported, another call came in. I'll play that clip here for you. Where? He sure didn't sound very weepy there. No, he sounded just like a man that got his ass kicked. <laughs> By a woman. By a woman. So... Somebody that's wanted generally doesn't call the authorities for help, but I think because of the emergency situation, he had no choice. Detective Brown said, now we're at the point where the arrest and the trial comes up. During an interview with police, Stefani claimed that he was the victim of a robbery. While Detective Brown confronted Stefani with the Weepy Voice Killer case file, Containing photographs of the victims, Stefani got up from his seat and said, You're not going to pin those on me. (laughs) And his voice immediately changed. You're not going to pin those on me. It wasn't me. You can't blame me for this. He went to a high pitch. Right away, (laughs) it struck me as the voice that I have heard on the recording, Detective Brown said. Stefani was then charged with the assault of Williams and the murder of Simmons. He pleaded not guilty. We believe that Paul Stefani had killed Kimberly Compton and assaulted Karen Potek, but we didn't have the evidence, said Tom Foley from the Ramsey County Attorney's Office. While investigating his background, Detective Brown learned Stefani previously had a girlfriend who ended up returning to her home country of Syria from an arranged marriage 
This upset Stefani very much. When Stefani was attacking his victims, I believe he was attacking his former girlfriend because he felt so betrayed by what she had did to him. Well, she probably felt betrayed too, thinking she was coming to the U.S. to marry a strong American man and he was nothing but a wimpy little <laughs> bitch. <laughs> that, so bad that she wanted to go back to her country. <laughs> Will you please make me dinner? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Why won't you cook for me? Please. <laughs> so, during his trial, the prosecution called Stefani's sister to the stand and had her listen to a recording made by the Weepy Voice Killer. And she identified the person as her brother. Another one that calls out a sibling. Yeah. We it, just had that in uh, the Katie Poyer, Donald Blum's brother called, said, nope, I gave him that shirt. Yeah. And Stefani was then convicted on both counts, and he was sentenced to 18 years for the attack on Williams and 40 years for Simmons' murder. More than a decade after the convictions, in 1997, Stefani reached out to law enforcement from behind bars to confess. He just wanted one thing in return, a photograph of his mother's headstone. They always want something. They always want something. It never fails, but I guess for just a photograph, they're probably going to allow that, you know? Right. In exchange for the images, Stefani admitted to the assaults and murder of which he was suspected, but he also claimed to have murdered another woman. Stefani, however, remembered no identifying information about the woman, only that he had drowned her in a bathtub. That's kind of different than his other MOs. Yeah, I'm assuming this was actually his first victim, which they didn't find out for, I think, until now. Right, right, because he confessed to it. Yeah, so it kind of ties into this now. They finally figure out after his mentioning this and then them searching for cold cases that haven't been solved. This is totally against his MO that he's been currently doing so obviously he escalated yeah so after days of searching they found a case that they believed to match stefani's victim kathleen greening a 33 year old school teacher who was found dead in her bathtub on july 21st 1982 paul stefani had details that only the killer knew he had specifics about the victim's apartment WCCO TV reporter Caroline Lowe told Mark of a Killer. When investigators looked back at the evidence and examined Greening's address book, they found Paul S. among with his phone number. Greening was Paul Stefani's first victim, but is unknown why he did not call in the murder as the Weepy Boys killer. So his name, basically his name and phone number was right there at the scene and they never knew that previously. Well, and it doesn't actually list his last name, so it'd be hard to track him. Right, but it does link him to her, definitely. Yeah, and the the phone number was in there. Right. In subsequent interviews with the media... Stefani offered no insight into the motivations behind the slings, but he did say that there was a voice in his head that told him, Paul, it's time to kill. (laughs) What? Yeah, kind of (laughs) weird. Seek mental help then. (laughs) Paul, Paul, listen to me. Listen to me, Paul. Paul, It's time. It's time. You need to kill somebody. That's how I hear it. (laughs) (laughs) He also divulged that after one of the murders, he went into a Catholic church and sat in the back of the pew and cried. (laughs) So it's just basically like he's calling into the couch again. Wow. Mother always told me, if something hurts you, go to God, Stefani said, adding that he wanted to come clean about the murders and the assaults because he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. A year later, on July 12, 1998, Stefani died inside the Oak Park Heights Maximum Security Prison Infirmary. 
I found a news article from when Paul and two of his uh, brothers, one younger, one older, not sure from what news article it's from. It was posted on findagrave.com's website under the pictures of Paul Michael Stefani. The title of the news article says, Two Saved from Drowning on the Same Day. Article reads, A second near drowning in Austin Wednesday was averted when 13-year-old Paul Stefani, son of Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Bliss, two miles east on Highway 16, was pulled from Dobbin Creek at the country club. Paul and older brother Gary and younger brother Ralph and Sammy Hogue were hunting golf balls in the area in the afternoon when Paul went into the creek at about 4 p.m. for a ball. The youth was coming out when he had apparently blacked out and fell backwards. His brother Gary pulled him out with the two other friends assisting and a call was immediately placed to the fire department. The fire ambulance took Paul to St. Olaf's Hospital, where he was reportedly in good condition and was to be released. Well, what if? They yeah, what if? I mean, I'm thinking if Gary would have just been a little slower at pulling that little bitch out, <laughs> Paul wouldn't have been able to uh, go on his uh, rampage. What an interesting find. Yeah, if Gary would have only been a little slower pulling Paul out of that creek, he could have unknowingly saved three lives and two others that were violently beaten to near death. Right. And that's my story. So I was thinking that maybe him and Donald Blum served at the same time, but you said he died in 98, right? In prison? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Blum, well, I mean, he was in and out of prison, but when he um, attacked Katie Poyer, that was 99. So I guess they probably didn't serve together, in, or not serve, serve time. But yeah, I was thinking that they were probably in the same prison. They were, but not at the same time. Yeah. Well, I have a cold case out of Wisconsin for us today. Ooh, Wisconsin, huh? Yeah, I went away from Minnesota. <laughs> what time? Right. Moving over to our neighbors to Moving the east. Moving on east. <laughs> so this cold case um, is about Sarah Ann Bushland. On August 15, 1980, Sarah Ann was born to parents Marie and Mike Bushland. Their family expanded with the arrival of Sarah and her big sister Leslie, who was only 18 months old at the time, was super excited about her new role as a big sister. Mike worked at a company called Cray Research, which dealt with supercomputers, while Marie worked at Amoco, not, uh, it's not Amoco, like the gas station, but Amoco, foam products, hopefully I'm saying that right. They lived in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, and were raising their two daughters, Sarah and Leslie, together. However, when Sarah was around four years old, her parents' marriage began to break down, and in 1984, they legally separated. After the separation, Marie began dating a man named Jim Lampert, who used to be a police officer and also served as military police in the Army. However, he no longer worked as a police officer when he met Marie. Both Jim and Marie were going through divorces at the time they met. Jim had four kids of his own. Danny was 11, David was 9, Dean was 5, and Diana was 3. It's the Brady Bunch. Right? I've never understood the naming your kids all with the same first letter either. Mm. (laughs) I mean... I screw up my kids' names enough. They don't have the same letter, but imagine having all the, uh, whatever your name is, get over here. In 1985, both Jim and Marie's divorces were finalized, allowing them to move forward with building their lives together. Jim chooses to live in a mobile home in Lafayette Township, New Jersey, and he takes along his sons, Danny and David, as well as Marie's daughters, Leslie and Sarah. Dean and Diana from Jim's previous marriage primarily live with their mother, but also have visitation with Jim now and then. 
Jim and Marie both work together at the same place, which means they often go to work together and spend the day together and return home together. 11-year-old Danny is tasked with the responsibility of watching all of the kids while the parents were at work. As stated in the book written by Robert M. Dudley, it was at this time without parental supervision in the home that four-year-old Sarah Bushland began being sexually abused by a family member. Official sources never confirmed who this person is, but there are rumors about who it's believed to be, which is so sad. I mean, sexual abuse is... It's not okay as it is, but a poor four-year-old little girl. But in 1988, Jim and Marie got married, blending their families together. They purchased a rural property near Spooner, Wisconsin, where they planned to build a life as one family. The property was tucked away, surrounded by 65 acres of land, and the two-story house sat about 200 yards from the main road, accessible via a long driveway. The area was densely wooded, providing a high level of privacy. So they went from New Jersey back to Wisconsin. And at this new home, Danny, David, Leslie, and Sarah primarily lived with Jim and Maria. Dean and Diana would stay part-time with Jim and Marie, while also spending time with their mother, Leslie and Sarah took turns going to their father's house, Mike's, in Chippewa Falls every other weekend. Or, excuse me, weekends they would spend with their father. So according to Dudley's book, the sexual assault of Sarah continued at the new house even after the move. And it also states that the three girls and one of the boys would all become victims of sexual abuse by this family member as well. The household was dealing with many issues, creating the unhealthy environment for the kids to grow up in. When Jim and Marie discovered the abuse, they attempted to handle it privately without involving law enforcement. They instructed the children not to disclose what happened, assuring them it would cease. Jim even put up a sign to remind them in the new home that read, What happens here stays here. What does he think this is, Vegas? Hmm. After some time, Mike Bushland became aware of the abuse. Despite the Lamberts' attempt to keep it hidden, concerned for their safety, both girls were taken out of their mother's home and went to live with their father, Mike. On their third wedding anniversary in early 1990, a suspicious fire broke out and completely destroyed the Lamberts' secluded home. Instead of using the insurance money to rebuild their original house, They decided to remodel the two-story detached garage on the property and moved into it as their place to live. They never used any of the insurance money to restore the original house. In 1990, Mike Bushland's job took him to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he decided to move with his daughters, Leslie and Sarah. Mike was a dedicated single father, and he instilled in his girls a sense of responsibility and strong work ethic. However, as the girls entered their preteen years, they began to test their boundaries like many adolescents. In late 1994, when Sarah was 13 years old, she was arrested for shoplifting. This incident greatly disappointed and frustrated Mike, as he had always taught her better. He believed in holding them accountable for their actions, and Sarah's behavior had consequences. Instead of facing her father's disappointment and punishment, Sarah chose to flee and return to her mother's home in Spooner, Wisconsin. Which, I mean, a lot of, not every preteen or, you know, adolescent has their butt with shoplifting, but a lot of us has. I mean, who as a kid didn't steal a sucker or something like that. I know I had an instance when I was a preteen and I got sh- caught shoplifting and boy, did my mom recal on me, but I wasn't in that household. So why she'd want to go back to the other house? I'm not sure. So Marie and Mike agreed that Spooner might offer a different environment for Sarah, hoping that change and reuniting her with her mother might be beneficial. Sarah hadn't lived with them for a while, so they hoped that it would all work out for the best. 
In the spring of 1995, Sarah officially returned to the Lambert home while her sister Leslie chose to continue living with their father. However, life with mom and stepfather wasn't as pleasant as Sarah had hoped. With no dedicated room for her, she was forced to sleep in Jim's office, which also served as a family storage room. This small space was cluttered with belongings and was filled with Jim's hunting rifles, making Sarah uncomfortable and very anxious. Sarah's older stepbrother, David, who is now 19, was starting a logging company with Jim. As for her 15-year-old sophomore brother, Dean, he seemed all right, but it didn't change how Sarah was feeling about being back in their home. Sarah also didn't get along that well with Jim, finding him controlling and manipulative. Moreover, her mom, Marie, seemed to be more like a friend than a responsible parent. At just 14 years old, Sarah was offered marijuana by her mother, which added to her confusion and lack of structure in the household. That's uh, not okay. Offering to smoke up with your 14-year-old daughter? <laughs> Usually not. No. After leaving her father's strict atmosphere, Sarah had hoped for a happy medium with her mother, but the lax environment wasn't working for her either. She felt caught between two extremes, making it a challenging situation for her to navigate. In 1985, Sarah was in her freshman year of high school. Being the new kid and having just moved back, nobody really knew her or remembered her, making her freshman year a bit more challenging. However, Sarah managed to find comfort in a small group of friends at school, which made things a lot better. Most of these friends were older than her, but their age difference didn't matter to her as long as she had companionship. During this school year, Sarah also found herself a much older boyfriend, Travis Lane, who was 21 years old. Yikes. The age gap was significant, but she felt happy with him. Unfortunately, when Jim and Marie discovered their relationship, they were furious and forbade her from seeing him. So she was 14 and he was 21? Uh-huh. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so despite their objections, Sarah continued to see Travis, leading to arguments and tensions at home. Yeah, that's, that is a huge age gap. <laughs> That's uh, definitely wrong. Yes. Somebody should have stepped in right there and stopped that. Definitely. As winter approached in 1995, the situation at home remained chaotic and not much had changed for Sarah. In December of 1995, Jim Lambert, concerned about what he perceived as uh, Sarah's rebellious behavior, stumbled upon her diary while she was away from the home. The diary's contents turned out to be deeply distressing and had significant repercussions for Sarah and everyone involved. As per sources, it was revealed that Sarah was pregnant and keeping it a secret from her parents. Consequently, they imposed a seemingly indefinite grounding on Sarah, which felt like a lifetime to her. She was confined to the house, permitted only to attend school, and strictly forbidden from seeing Travis ever again. Jim and Marie scheduled an abortion against Sarah's wishes. She told them that she wanted to keep the baby, but they convinced her otherwise, and on February 6, 1996, Sarah was taken to Duluth for an abortion. Jim also contacted 21-year-old Travis and threatened him with legal action against a minor unless he repaid him for the cost of the abortion. I'm sorry, why would you be threatening him if he doesn't repay you for the cost of the abortion? You should be threatening him because he's sleeping with your 14-year-old daughter. Legal action should have been taken either way. The tension at this home intensifies as Sarah defies her grounding, sneaks out to see Travis as often as possible. In March of 1996, Sarah reached out to her grandmother on her dad's side and expressed her desire to move back with her dad and Leslie, who now live in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. 
She confides with her grandmother, admitting that she's too afraid to ask her dad to return home after all that's happened. Her grandmother reassured her that her dad would welcome her back, but advises her to speak with him directly about it. On April 2nd, 1996, Jim had his friend Brian over at the Lambert home, and the plan was for Brian to stay the night before they both headed to Stillwater, Minnesota the next day to visit some friends. Brian, originally from Canada, had been friends with Jim for a long time, but he was known for engaging in shady activities and criminal behavior. Their friendship seemed to bring out the darker side of Jim, as he had been involved in breaking hunting and fishing laws for some time, and there were suspicions of him being linked to various insurance frauds, including the previous arson incident that destroyed their family home years ago. On the morning of April 3rd, the last day before spring break, Jim and Marie agreed to lift Sarah's grounding. It was finally the day for Sarah to experience freedom again, to hang out with friends, and to, to do whatever teenagers usually do. She had plans to visit a friend's house before school. They would walk to school together, and after school, spring break would officially begin, and she was looking forward to enjoying the break with her friends. When Sarah woke up that morning, her stepbrothers, David and Dean, were home. Jim's friend Brian was also there. Her mother, Marie, had gone to a funeral in Chippewa Falls. Her oldest stepbrother was in the Navy, and her sister, Leslie, still lived with her father in Chippewa Falls. Diana remained with her mother full-time. Jim and Brian left for Minnesota that morning, but Brian noticed that Sarah was acting strangely before they departed, which I find that statement kind of off because Brian didn't know Sarah. So how would he know if she was acting strangely? So anyways, Sarah's stepbrother, Dean, agrees to give her a ride to her friend's house before school. They follow through with their plans and walk to school that morning. And around noon, Sarah's 21-year-old boyfriend, Travis, drives to the school to pick her up for lunch. They then head to one of Travis's friends' houses and spend their lunch hour there. Afterwards, Sarah returns to school for the second half of the day. During the afternoon, Sarah asks one of their neighbors if they can give her a ride home after school because she needs to get something to bring to her friend's house. However, her friend believes that there was more to the story. According to her friend, Sarah wanted to go home to get her diary. She was worried that since her grounding was over that day, that Jim might try to take her diary again and find a way to extend her punishment. She just wanted to get home and find her diary to ensure it was safe. Her friend noticed her demeanor had changed from the morning to the afternoon, and she seemed preoccupied with getting home and finding her diary. Something might have happened during the day to cause this change, but no one knows. I am just confused on this because Jim's supposedly in Minnesota with Brian, so why would there be that worry that she needed to get home? Not sure. So that kind of confuses me, unless she didn't know that they were staying in Minnesota. But I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, where they were going isn't that far from where they lived, but. So Sarah didn't get a ride home from the neighbor. She ended up having to take the bus home. On the bus, she sat next to a friend and she sneakily smoked a cigarette. Another friend on the bus invited Sarah over for Easter that weekend and Sarah Lee happily agrees, saying that she probably can because she's no longer grounded. On April 3rd, 1996, at 3.45 p.m., Sarah exited the school bus at the end of the Lampert's long secluded driveway only David, the oldest one living at home at the time, is there when she gets off the bus. Dean, 16 years old, is not around and his whereabouts are unknown. Sarah's friend observed a dark-colored pickup truck pulling into the Lampert's driveway behind the bus. The truck looks somewhat like Sarah's old boyfriend Steve's truck, but her friend cannot be sure. She watches as Sarah walks over to the passenger side of the pickup and it's evident from Sarah's body language that she knows the person that's inside the truck. She doesn't seem alarmed, and they, are, they appear to be talking. 
The friend's brother claims to have seen Sarah get into the passenger side of the truck, but nobody else on the bus can confirm this. Another student on the bus notices the pickup truck backing out of the driveway and heading east. At the same time, Sarah's neighbor is stopped on the street due to the bus's arm being extended. He also sees the truck in the driveway, but doesn't recognize it as belonging to Travis's father. He believes three people were in the truck when he looked over, and he states that the truck went west instead of east when it left. Another student notes that it was common for Travis to wait at the end of Sarah's driveway for the bus. Unfortunately, this is the last time that Sarah is ever seen. An hour later, at 4.37 p.m., David, Sarah's stepbrother, who is at home, calls Jim, who is in Minnesota with Brian. This call is confirmed through phone records, so we know it indeed happened. Jim then calls Marie, Sarah's mom, and informs her that he's in Minnesota and that she needs to handle the situation, even though she's at a funeral. Marie rushes back home and arrives at 6.20 p.m., she tells Jim that she has called Sarah several times, but there's been no answer. Marie searches the property but cannot find her daughter. Growing increasingly worried, she starts calling Sarah's friends and anyone she can think of to try to track her down. By 8 p.m., Marie is concerned as nobody seems to know where Sarah is. Marie calls Jim again, who's still in Minnesota, and expresses how deeply worried she is. After the call, Marie drives to the friend's house where Sarah had been that morning and talks to her. The friend's mom described Marie as frantic when she arrived, desperate to find her daughter. The friend and her mother inform Marie that they have not seen Sarah since that afternoon. Marie and their friend decide to go to Travis's apartment to ask in person about Sarah. When they get there, Travis tells them that he hasn't seen her since lunch, and they also drive to Travis's father's house in Trigo, but he's currently in jail on drug charges, which, why would they drive out there? Not sure. So around 9.30 p.m., Marie returns to the Lampert property and enters the house, she continues to call more of Sarah's friends and they confirm that they saw Sarah get off the bus and interact with someone in a dark truck in their driveway, though the truck's color remains uncertain depending on who you ask. At 10.30 p.m., Marie calls her husband Jim, who's still hanging out with friends while she frantically tries to find their daughter. She informs Jim that Sarah did not take any money. She did not take any additional clothing or belongings that day. Marie expressed her deep concern for Sarah, but Jim decides to stay overnight in Stillwater with Brian at a friend's house. He chooses not to return home despite Sarah being missing, which I find oddly strange as well. The next morning on April 4th, around 9 a.m., Jim calls Marie and informs her that he and Brian are coming home. However, they made a stop on the way back at a sporting goods store to buy gunpowder. Sarah is still not home. By noon, Jim finally arrives home, but Marie notices that he looks unusually tired. He nonchalantly dismisses Sarah's disappearance, saying it's not a big deal and that she's probably just enjoying her first day of freedom at a friend's house. However, Marie remains deeply concerned and convinces him to help her search for Sarah. Jim and Marie inspect the tire tracks in the driveway and look around Sarah's usual hangout spots in town. Eventually, they decide to report Sarah missing as a runaway to the Washburn County Sheriff's Office in Shell Lake. It's unclear whether they specifically reported her as a runaway, but that's how her disappearance is officially filed. Mike, Sarah's father, is not informed of her disappearance until two days later on April 6th when Marie's mother calls him to tell him what's happening why wasn't he one of the first places they checked? Yeah, you'd think they'd check everywhere. Yeah, I just don't understand. Why Why wouldn't they check there? It just confuses me so bad. It's funny in all these stories, it always seems like it could be so many different multiple people. You know, right. first the boyfriend, Travis, and then 
you know, the stepdad and his friend. And I mean, Jesus. Yeah, it's and there's a lot of different things because in the beginning they talked about the sexual abuse and I'm not going to name any names, but the person I perceive by the way the book made it sound, it was the only one that was home when she got off of the bus. Allegedly, I'm I'm not going to say that that's who it was, but mm. the way the book kind of pointed to who they suspected it being was the only one that was home when she got off the bus. So, yeah, there's so many twists and turns in this that, I mean... It seems like they would have a clearer picture, you know? Right. Be able to figure something out. Right. But then with them not reporting her missing for so long, not contacting the dad, so... The Lambert family doesn't immediately spread the news around town about Sarah's disappearance. It takes two weeks until April 18th for the Spooner Advocate to publish an article about it. In the article, Marie expresses uncertainty whether Sarah ran away or if she was abducted. So according to Leslie, Sarah's sister, she felt that the adults, especially their mother Marie, didn't show a sense of urgency following Sarah's disappearance. Leslie believes that this is why the police didn't initiate an immediate search or a thorough investigation. As a teenager at the time, Leslie went along with it, assuming the police were doing their job, but she noticed that no one seemed to be actively concerned about finding Sarah. Yeah, I think if you're ever in this situation, don't just assume the cops are going to do what they're supposed to do, because that never seems to be the case. Right, The police in the initial days publicly stated that they didn't believe foul play was involved and that Sarah hadn't been kidnapped. They urged Sarah to contact someone to confirm that she was okay. However, Leslie questioned why the police didn't contact her father for two days. Normally, you would expect them to contact the family to check to see if she went to her father's place, but this wasn't done, making the situation seem suspicious to her. Even if they weren't checking to see if she was there, why weren't they checking to see if he was a suspect even, you right. know? Yeah, I mean, they should be should have called everybody. Right. It's, it's a weird case. It is a really weird case, and unfortunately it doesn't get any uh, less strange. In the months following Sarah's disappearance, tensions at home grew and something seemed off with Dean and David. About six months later, David packed up his belongings and left the house while Jim was at work, cutting ties with him. Dean followed suit and moved out a month later. Both sons distanced themselves from Jim and did not keep in touch. So I find that's very suspicious as well. What was Jim doing that forced both of his sons within that month time frame to Uh, move out? Obviously, they don't like the guy much. Right. Nobody wants to stick around this guy. No. For nearly three years, Sarah remained missing, and her name was on a list of runaways receiving little attention. Mike Bushland, her father, held out hope that she would return on her 18th birthday, but that day passed without any word from her. In July 1999, the police finally reopened the investigation and considered Sarah as an endangered missing person. Various searches were conducted, including one on the Lambert property and a nearby lake, but nothing significant was found. In 2011, a cold case team was brought in to review the case, but no new leads emerged. In May 2013, a group of over 70 officials, including cadaver dogs, conducted another search of the Lambert property, but again, nothing of importance was discovered. The mystery of Sarah Bushland's disappearance remains unsolved. In February 2017, a reporter covered the story of Sarah's disappearance and conducted interviews with Leslie and Mike. The coverage gained momentum as the station offered a $5,000 reward for information prompting other stations to follow suit and air coverage on the case. It was the first time the case received significant media attention since Sarah went missing. In April 2017, Marie Lambert passed away due to COPD. Just two months later, Jim Lampert also succumbed to COPD. 
A week after Jim's death, investigators searched the Lambert property once again, but no new evidence is found. Which this I kind of find weird that they both passed away from COPD. It almost makes me wonder if it wasn't something within their living conditions that caused something with their lungs. I'm not sure. Me either. That was just a total speculation on my part. But following this search, local authorities acknowledged that more should have been done from the onset, you think? But at the time, the protocols for handling missing teens were inadequate. They revealed that now the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children are all involved in the case. As of 2019, a new lead investigator was assigned to the case after the previous one retired. The search for answers and justice for Sarah Bushland continues. Leslie and Mike Bushland continue their relentless search for answers about what happened to Sarah. Leslie has decided to keep her last name as Bushland, hoping that if Sarah is searching for her, she can easily be found. They also manage the Find Sarah Bushland Facebook page to keep the case alive and raise awareness. Leslie wants people to know that they can reach out to her via email at lesliesmall at yahoo.com. If they have any information, at this point she emphasizes she doesn't necessarily need to see prosecution. She just wants answers about Sarah's disappearance. Sarah was a social butterfly with blonde hair and green eyes, effortlessly fitting into any group. She had quick wit and a sense of humor that charmed everyone around her. She babysat to earn money, and the child she babysat for saw Sarah as her beacon of hope, making her a happier child and considering her a big sister figure. Leslie believes that every missing person deserves to be looked for, and she's determined to keep searching for Sarah. The last known outfit Sarah wore was a blue jacket, jeans, and a Tweety Bird t-shirt and black Reebok sneakers. If anyone has any information regarding Sarah's disappearance or her current whereabouts, they can contact the Washburn County Sheriff's Department at 715-468-4700. The callers can choose to remain anonymous. People familiar with this case have discussed three main theories. The first is that Sarah got into the truck and something tragically happened to her while she was inside. The second is that Sarah got into the truck but was later brought back and then something unfortunate happened to her. The third suggests that Sarah never actually got into the truck and instead went straight home where something dreadful occurred. Marie eventually handed over Sarah's diary to Leslie, but to their dismay, more than half of the pages were torn out and missing leaving behind an unsettling mystery of what was written on those pages and what information they might have contained about Sarah's experiences and thoughts. So that is my case for today. Nice. Not a happy one. Not a happy one. They never are when they're missing. No, and cold cases are even harder because there's so many unanswered questions. Yeah. I just, I feel for the family. And I know I did see that... Um, Sarah's sister Leslie is currently working with some people on a documentary so that'll be coming out I believe this year nice yes so I look forward to seeing that and hopefully we can get some answers and bring Sarah home yeah but that's all I have for today all right I guess that's a wrap that is a wrap for today we love you guys love you bye Thanks for hanging out with us here at Total Conundrum. Please make sure to check out our website and blog at totalconundrum.com. For news, upcoming events, merch, bloopers, and additional hysteria, you never know what will pop up, so be sure to follow along. If you want to show your support for Total Conundrum and gain access to all of our bonus content, please visit our Patreon page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The links are available in our show notes. If you have any questions, comments, recommendations, or stories to share, please email us at contact at totalconundrum.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the love. Keep on creeping on, mother cluckers.